Tonight we're beginning a two-week mini-series, uh, and we're obviously in the midst of Advent 2020. Um, but you might be surprised uh, to find out that in a series on the last days, it doesn't have to be disrupted by an Advent theme. Um, the two go together. Uh, and so um, we're actually going to look at some really important eschatology and how it integrates with the concept of Advent. So uh, we need to begin by understanding what this Advent, an old Latin theological term, means. So you're going to have early, lots of blanks tonight and uh, early blanks. I hope you've, uh, the URL is here and it's also in the chat. Um, so if you don't uh, have it yet, feel free to grab those and, uh, and uh, you'll want to have them to help through tonight. Also make sure you have your Bible. Um, so here's uh, what Advent means. Here's the blanks. The coming of the Most High God. Uh, and this term's been around a really, really long time. Um, and it's a parallel to the term that is much more commonly known, coming from the Hebrew Emmanuel, or as we say, Emmanuel, which means multiple things. It means God with us, God among us. But the less well-known uh, term, but equally important, is God within us. That's the, that's the promise of Pentecost. Jesus came in the flesh and the Spirit came and indwells His church. So this incredible uh, concept. And so Advent means that God has chosen to come out of eternity, uh, enter time and space, and actually come into this world. And at Christmas, of course, we celebrate the first Advent, the coming of the Most High God, born of the Virgin Mary in Bethlehem. Isaiah is Isaiah 9 is the most familiar for sure, of the millennial, excuse me, the prophecies of the first advent. And you probably know it well, for unto us a child is born, and amazingly enough, his name shall be called Mighty God. What a stunning concept. The child who was born is El Shaddai, the Mighty God. That's why Christmas is the celebration of an advent. It's a coming of the Most High God. And Christmas, as I said, was the first advent but in a series on the second coming, it's important to link Christmas, the first advent, to the second advent. And as we'll see, any celebration of Christmas that doesn't point to the coming advent, the second coming of Christ, is actually an incomplete Christmas celebration. Because the point of the first advent is always looking to the blessed hope of the church, the return of that incredible advent a second time. So when history is complete, I want us to think about this historically. When we come to the end of history, only God knows when that will be. There will have been two true advents, Christ's first coming and his second coming. But it's appropriate to identify, I think this is a rarely recognized historical fact, right? And this is your next blank. At its essence, human history is a continuous story of false advents. It's a history of the world repeatedly misidentifying the coming of God, or another way to say it, who God really is. Um, and so we're going to look at a, uh, turn with me to Genesis chapter 3, first book in the Bible, third chapter. We're going to look at a series uh, of false advents. There are many, many scores more than this in the scripture, but just a few of them to uh, take a look at this history. And starting all the way back at the beginning of human history, we're going to look first at false advent number one, uh, look at verse 3, excuse me, verse 2 of chapter 3 of Genesis. And the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, 
but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, you surely shall not die. So you ready for the first false advent? Here it is, number one, fill in your blank. I am the most high God, right? Here's the serpent tempting Adam and Eve to think, hey, maybe God's not God. Maybe I can call the shots. Maybe I'm the advent here, not the king. False advent number two. So we only have to go for the next one to the next book in the Bible, Exodus, the second book in the Bible, and turn with me to Exodus chapter 32 uh, to a, a really, really famous story. Here's Moses up getting the Ten Commandments, and he's there longer than the people want. And what in the world is happening down in the valley, down below the mountain? Uh, an amazing story. Look at chapter 32, verse 1. Now, the, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, Come, make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And Aaron said to them, Tear off the gold rings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. Then all the people tore off the gold which were in their ears, and they brought them to Aaron. And this verse is incredible, right? And he took this from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, you ready for this? This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Have you ever heard anything more brain dead than that? But there it is. Uh, here's your blank. Ad, false advent number two. The calf is the most high God. In other words, if you understand the concept of advent right? The appearance of the Most High God. This is Israel saying, in essence, the golden calf has come, so it's time to celebrate Advent. False Advent number three. Now turn to Second Chronicles. For that, you'll go past the Torah, the first five books, and uh, then you'll go through three historical books, and then you get into the Kings, the Samuels, the Kings, and the Chronicles. So Second Chronicles. Uh, here we are uh, uh, with Ahab, the most evil of the northern kings during the divided kingdom. Second Chronicles chapter 33, uh, and this is in the midst of a very, very, uh, uh, a very uh, 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 famous time. Excuse me, wait a second. No, this is during the time of Manasseh, who is the most evil king of the southern kingdom. We'll come to Ahab in just a minute, who has his own false advent. Uh, look at this with me at uh, verse 1, chapter 33. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. And notice this, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord dispossessed before the sons of Israel. This is so sad because his father Hezekiah was one of the five great godly kings of the southern kingdom of Judah. And yet look what, <coughs> look what Manasseh does. For Manasseh rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah, his father, had broken down, meaning he, he tore down the altars of idolatry. He also erected altars for the Baals and made Asherim and worshipped all the host of heaven, in other words, the demons, all the host of heaven, and he served them. So you ready for false advent number three? Look at this. Here are the blanks. The idols and the demons are the most high God. Here they are worshiping idols made from human hands and the, de the demons, the host of heaven, the evil fallen uh, angelic beings. And in other words, 
Baal is here. It's time to celebrate Advent. Advent is, uh, excuse me, Baal is the most high God. False Advent number four. Turn with me now to Daniel, the book of Daniel. So if you go through the middle where you'll find the Psalms, turn to the right uh, a couple of books and you'll start uh, getting into the major prophets. Daniel is the last of the minor, uh, the major prophets, excuse me, right after Ezekiel and right before Hosea starts the minor prophets. And uh, in Daniel chapter three, here's this also well-known um, very well-known uh, uh, time in Babylon, chapter 3, verse 1, to see another false advent. Nebuchadnezzar, the king, made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits, and its width six, six cubits. So this is a gigantic, huge statue, right? Um, if a cubit is approximately the typical cubit uh, of those days, then we're talking 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide. This is a big idol. And he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Let's skip to verse 3. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces were assembled for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And look at the last sentence in this paragraph, verse 7. Therefore, at that time, when all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigone, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, listen, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar, the king, had set up. So false advent number four, here's your blank. The image is the most high God. In other words, wow, look at this huge, massive golden statue it's time to celebrate Advent because he is the Most High God. And then Advent, uh, false Advent number five. Uh, here's your blanks. The modern cults. Now the foundation of the cults may have never been articulated as clearly as the statement by Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism. Here's your four blanks. This is an incredibly telling quote that came from Joseph Smith. Look at this. As man is... God was. In other words, God wasn't always God. God, by doing good, became a deity. So as man is, God was. And as God is, man may become. In other words, we can become God by following the right rules, doing righteous things. We can become divine. Just let that sink in for a minute. And so, here's your blank. What's the false advent of the cults? You ready for this? We've heard this before. I am the most high God. So guess what? Genesis 3 all over again. The new age is really the old age, right? Like Adam and Eve, the new age simply embodies the false advent of the self. Nothing really changes here. We're still trying to declare ourselves God. I'm an advent. So, what's interesting now, and now we start transitioning to the future. See, this won't always be the case. Biblical prophecy tells us that there's a change coming. The history of self-deification will come to an end. The proclamation of me as my own God is going to have a dramatic turn in the future. Let me explain what I mean by this. Within every human, there's a deep God-given urge to serve Him, 
But this desire throughout all of history, everything that humanity has pursued other than God himself has become misplaced, perverted, misdirected, and most humans have attempted to enthrone ourselves. That's kind of the history that we've seen. But the excesses of a self-serving world are taking their toll on the very fabric of society. The culmination of humanity's history of rejection of God's ways has led to worldwide epidemics of, listen to this short list that I made, our self-serving nature has led to epidemics of civil war, racial hatred, terrorism, environmental deterioration, violence, drug addiction, religious conflict, poverty, and starvation. These awesome, devastating problems are even now beginning to crack the facade of humanity's hope that we can save ourselves from our own worst enemy, us. This is, uh, this is really pointed out well by biblical scholar Grant Jeffrey, and this quote I think is in your notes in his book, uh, Apocalypse. L look at this insightful observation. As we've entered the third millennium, the world is desperately looking for a Messiah figure to solve its huge and growing problems. The Buddhists and the Hindus are searching for the next avatar. The Muslims are expecting the appearance of the Madai, a Messiah-like figure mentioned by the Quran to usher in the last days. And in Israel today, there's a rising expectation of the coming Messiah. Banners in Jerusalem proclaim, we want Messiah now. In our country, think about this, can you remember an election where the language from both sides of the political spectrum was more messianic than this election? How many times did you hear the statement, there's never been a more important election in American history? And so what? guess what? Half of the country is celebrating new hope, and half of the country is devastated and convinced that we're on a precipice toward irreversible ruin. Stop for a second. Can you see it? There's a new wind blowing, and it's based upon the idea that the ones who hold the positions of great power are the hope for the future. How remarkable that even the church has gotten suckered into the idea that our hope could be in Washington? Are you kidding? But there it is. But amazingly, the scripture foretold of this idea and that it would emerge as the world approaches the end. The prophets told of a day when humanity would hope in a treacherous leader who would come and save the world when the world was desperate. And as societies crumble all over the globe, as Western society's fiscal irresponsible plummets the world economy toward total collapse, and think about this, as the pandemic stokes the fires of those who are calling for abolishing cash and centralizing the control of all currencies, as all of this is begging for a world leader, a sovereign Lord who claims that he can fix this planet's catastrophic problems. In the midst of all of this, a call for a global savior will gain momentum. And if you know Israel's history, think about this. You'll notice that it's very reminiscent of the days of King Saul. At the end of the 400 years of the judges, you remember, the, the interaction with the people and Samuel, the prophet, and also the last judge. Israel begged him for an earthly king. They didn't want God to rule over them. And in the very same way, as we enter the last days, humanity won't enthrone the real king, King Jesus, 
Rather, humanity's desire for an earthly savior, a ruler who will embody the whole history of human self-worship, our desire for a prince who will speak the words that we want to hear, the world will be looking for a master who will have all the answers that sound so wise to the deceived human mind. This long history of false advents is hurtling toward a great final false advent. So let's take a step back for a moment. What in the world does this lesson have to do with Christmas? Believe it or not, everything. Let's return to the days before the first advent in Israel. Because of the words of the prophets, Israel was waiting for the coming of not one, but actually two huge figures. Turn with me to Malachi. So Malachi is easy to find. Just find Matthew, the first gospel, and turn to left. Uh, one, and Malachi is the, is the last of the, the uh, minor prophets. The last book of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. And here we see this intermingling of a calling of a prophet, but also clearly of Messiah. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Look at this. Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me with a capital M, if your translation is right. So it's talking of the messenger, more on that in a minute. But it will clear the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. So here is this incredible messianic prophecy. And the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So number one, the huge figure that probably everyone that's watching knows of is they were walking, here's your blank, they were waiting for Messiah to come. But now look at the next, now look at the next uh, uh, um, uh, chapter, chapter four, verse five, right? So here we are, think about it. They're in the dark days of the Roman Empire. Israel's hoping for the coming of their great Messiah, but they're also looking for someone else. Look at this, verse Four of chapter uh, four. Remember, excuse me, uh, yes, of chapter four. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Behold, look at verse five. This is stunning. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah. Now, this would have been written 300 years after Elijah, Malachi, writing around 400 BC. And so notice, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. So right in number two, the second huge figure they were looking for was they were waiting for Elijah to come. Now, what did it mean for Israel to be waiting to see the prophet Elijah come? Clearly, they did not believe in reincarnation. That would have been rejected outright. So what this clearly means is there would be a prophet who would come with the power and the spirit of Elijah, much like immediately after Elijah, Elisha had his spirit. But this would then be after Malachi in the future, the coming of Elijah, this great prophet that would foretell the coming of the true advent, the true Messiah. And of course, in the New Testament, we see both of these big biblical figures have already come. So you're in Malachi, turn just through the uh, Gospels to Acts, Acts chapter 2. This is the great message from the Apostle Peter at Pentecost. And notice uh, 
All we need here is one verse. It says it all. Acts chapter 2, verse 36. And there, were, uh, there was a prophetess. Excuse me, Luke doesn't help. <laughs> Acts, Acts chapter 2. Uh, uh, and we'll be in verse 36. Hopefully you're already all there after me uh, fumbling around through the text here. Uh, chapter 2, verse 36, the end of that paragraph. Therefore, let all the house Peter preaching, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And you probably know that the, the transliteration from the Hebrew into the Greek here, this, this is in Greek, Christos, actually is transliteration of the Hebrew Meshiach, meaning Messiah. So Christ, when you see it in the New Testament, is the same as the word for Messiah or deliverer uh, in the Old Testament. So think of this, Messiah has come. But now look at Matthew, back to the left four books, the first, again, the first of the Gospels, Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, and this is really an astounding verse. Jesus talking about John the Baptist. And if you look at the way this, uh, this um, starts early in this chapter, it talks of the amazing, uh, uh, mir miraculous uh, elderly Elizabeth and Zecharias, way past the ages that they could have children. They have this incredible miracle pregnancy. Uh, and uh, the angel says, call him John. And this is, of course, John the Baptist. But look what Jesus says about John the Baptist, verse 7, chapter 11. And these are going away, Jesus began to speak. These were going away, Jesus began to speak to the multitudes about John, not the apostle, but John the Baptist. What did you go out to the wilderness to look at? A reed shaken by the wind? Look with me now at verse 10. This is the one about whom it is written, and it goes now all the way back to Malachi, right where we were, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. And now look at verse 13 with me. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you care to accept it, this is a stunning statement, he himself is Elijah who was to come. So it's important to understand this passage from a Hebraic perspective. This is today's Hebrews. The Jewish people of today have longed for the coming of the prophet Elijah for 2,400 years, ever since Malachi foretold that he would appear to announce the coming of Messiah. This widespread expectation of the return of Elijah expresses itself. You may not know this, but this is in the Passover meal celebrated every year by Jews around the world. Every Passover for nearly two and a half millennia, think of this, they have left a window or a door ajar, and you know why? So that Elijah can enter and join them in the anticipation of the coming Jewish Messiah. They also set out an extra cup of wine for him, for Elijah, in the hope that this will be the year that God fulfills his promise to deliver Israel. They wait with great anticipation still to this day for Elijah's appearance. And now I want you to see something really striking about Elijah. Among all the prophets, it's totally unique. Now we go back to 1 Kings, okay, about a quarter of the way into your Bible, 1 Kings 
This is, sorry, this is the setup I said earlier. This is the setup for Ahab of the 19 northern kings. Ahab was the most evil. Manasseh, we already heard about, was the most evil of the 20 southern kings. But here we see um, Elijah facing off with Ahab, this incredible story. I wish we had time to go into it, but we don't. But uh, what's happened is Baal has failed to answer by fire. And now Elijah has had the prophets pour water all over the offering. And now Elijah talks to his God. Verse 36, it came about at the time of the offering of the, uh, the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that you, O God, are God in Israel, and I am your servant, and that I have done all these things because of your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their heart back again. And look what happens. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. Now, th this is really remarkable. Be turning back with me to Revelation chapter 13. All right, Revelation chapter 13. Because there's some really important text going on in here. You ready? Um, look at verse 1 in Revelation chapter 13. Last book in the Bible. Revelation chapter 13, verse 1. And he stood on the sand, sand of the seashore, and I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. So this is, we don't have time to go into the detail now, but this is the Antichrist. This is the beast. And actually, if you link this back to Daniel's teaching in chapters 7 and, uh, and 8 especially, you see this uh, coming of this final global uh, one world order with probably 10 world areas led by these kings, uh, but the beast being in charge. And then look at verse 11 with me. Um, next paragraph, look at this. And I saw another beast coming out of the earth. So we've seen the first beast, the Antichrist. We've saw, seen another beast coming up out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb and he spoke as a dragon. And he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence. And he makes the earth and those who dwell in it worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. And he performs, verse 13, and he performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of humanity. Think of this. Amazing, right? Here is this waiting for Elijah for 2,400 years. They've been longing for him, right? And now they're waiting for this to happen. And guess who shows up? A prophet who is pointing to the Messiah, you ready for the unique prophetic fact about Elijah? Elijah, here's your blank. Elijah was the only prophet who brought down fire from heaven. So look what the setup is again. Look at verse 13 once more. And he performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. Here are your blanks. What is calling the, the fire down mean? Ready? It, what's it create? A perfect setup. Here's your blanks. A perfect setup 
for the Jews to accept the false prophet as Elijah. Think of this. Fire coming down, just like Elijah did. And the Antichrist is their long-awaited Messiah. Remarkable, isn't it? But from here, it gets even more treacherous. Right? That in and of itself would be impressive enough. Passover, waiting for Elijah, this future. Here comes Elijah, fire coming out of heaven. And he points to the Christ and says, worship him. Really remarkable. Um, the biblical term Antichrist actually reveals the most sinister of Satan's plans. You see, this plot is made clear by the dual meaning in the Greek for the prefix anti. I don't know if you know, but there's actually two primary meanings for the prefix anti in the Greek. Number one, we're all familiar with this. It means, here's your blank, opposed to or against. Opposed to or against, right? Anti. He's against. But number two, the other primary meaning in the Greek is, you ready for this? In place of or a substitute for or instead of, let me say that again, in place of, or a substitute for, or instead of. So don't miss this. The Antichrist will embody both of these meanings simultaneously. Here's how. It's in a key concept here. Here's your blanks. The Antichrist will oppose Christ while pretending to be Christ. So, most of us have been conditioned to think that this sinister man will exude evil from every pore of his body, right? Antichrist, the beast. But within the very meaning of his name, we see that he'll actually appear as a substitute for Christ. And this should dispel the popular misconception of an evil-looking monster. Since the Antichrist will be the ultimate servant of Satan... He'll actually appear as the purest angel of light that Satan can produce. So Antichrist will make the greatest false advent appear as if it's the very essence of all that's good and right. He'll be the ultimate master of deception. And to see this, I want us to look at the first description of the Antichrist in Revelation. You're in verse 13, uh, excuse me, chapter 13. Turn with me back to chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6. This is the beginning of the seal judgments. All right? If you've been watching this series, you'll be familiar with this. Look at verse 1, chapter 6, the beginning of the tribulation. This is the first time we see Antichrist, but look how he looks. And I saw there the lamb broke one of the seven seals. I heard one of the four living creatures saying, as with a voice of thunder, come. Verse 2, and I looked and behold a white horse and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and notice he's anointed leader, and he went out conquering and to conquer. Notice, throughout history, the Jews expected Messiah to come as a military leader on a great horse to save them. But notice, Antichrist appears in John's vision with a bow but no arrow. In other words, he comes with a weapon for war, but no apparent ammo. He's offering a war-sick world the false promise of peace. Using this pretense, the great deceiver will consolidate his supreme power over the new world order. Make no mistake, just as the text says, while he appears to come in peace, he's actually coming to conquer. Now think about where we stand today with Israel. 
All you have to do is watch the news to see how desperate Israel is for peace. Did you know that that nation spends over 50% of the government budget on defense? Did you know that they require every able-bodied woman and man to serve for several years in the military? Despite this, they're outnumbered by the Arab military forces 15 to 1 that surround them and by more than a 5 to 1 ratio in essentially every category of weaponry. Tragically, here's the scoop. Israel desperate for peace, desperate for Elijah, desperate for Messiah. You can see them on the billboards now in Jerusalem. And when the Antichrist appears, whose way has been perfectly prepared by Elijah, Israel will sign their final peace treaty, and that fateful treaty with the angel of light will actually set the stage for Israel's darkest hour, the holocaust of all holocausts. But what's amazing is Antichrist's plan gets even more sinister than this. It's not just Israel that's at risk in this coming delusion. Many in the church will be drawn by the deception. In the past, the church has upheld the truth of the gospel no matter what falsehood was being perpetuated by the world or by the heretics within the church. The church's stand has always been clear. Believe and follow the historical Christ of the Bible, the only Savior. But look what's coming. Behold the ultimate deception. Satan posing as God. Antichrist posing as the true Christ. And not just the world, but all the apostate church will also be totally taken by the charade. Instead of a frontal assault against Christianity, at first, the evil one will pervert the church from within by posing as its founder. He'll cunningly misrepresent Christ by, you ready for the second meaning of anti from the Greek? By the process of substitution, coming instead of Christ, anti-Christ, He'll totally undermine and pervert the historic faith. Just think of this. The church, the agency that through all the centuries has identified each of the false advents for what they were, will now lead the charge of the final and most dastardly of all attempts to dethrone the Most High God. In fact, many scholars believe that what you see in chapter 17 of Revelation, the harlot of Babylon, is actually the false church, the fake bride uh, of, of the true Christ the false bride that follows the false Christ, the false Messiah. Um, So uh, this is an altogether different scenario from what's envisioned by most people, right? Most believers, if they believe in an antichrist at all, they presume that he'll be an obviously eagle ogre, right? One whom any child could immediately recognize. But the reality of his coming will be altogether different from this. He'll be the closest counterfeit of Christ that Satan can produce. And, completely deceived by this masquerade, the world will hail him as its deliverer. There he is, Messiah. Now pay attention, it's a key concept, write it in, here's your blanks. Since Antichrist will pretend to be Christ, his followers will be, you ready for this? Christians. That's right. Would-be Christians will announce him as the Christ, and the church will declare him to be the Savior. Now, it's immediately apparent that such an unthinkable scenario will require 
a bunch of preconditions to make it possible, right? First of all, the apostate church in the last days must become corrupted so that it actually opposes what Christ taught, while at the same time insisting that it's being faithful to him. We see a lot of that in the broader church already, right? Acting as if we are following the historic Christ while really completely changing the word and uh, uh, changing it dr uh, very dramatically. So Satan's lie must be honored as God's truth without those who are deceived even knowing that this metamorphosis is occurring. And you can see the blindness and the deception even as we sit here. And here's what's really scary. This perversion will have to emerge from within the church itself. And this is exactly what the Apostle Paul teaches. Turn with me, you're in the, uh, at the end of the, of the New Testament. Turn back uh, through the Hebrews, and uh, after the Colossians come the Thessalonians, right? It's the first two of the five T's that are together. Uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and you see this is exactly what Paul teaches here in this amazing warning about the coming spirit of Antichrist and the real Antichrist and the apostasy. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you may not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Watch this, verse 3. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed. Here's the beast, the Antichrist, right? The son of destruction, verse 4, look at the description of Antichrist, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God, Jesus said, and Daniel chapter 9 teaches that happens at the mid midpoint of the seven years at the abomination of desolation. Here he goes in, desecrates the temple, stops the daily sacrifice that's happened for the first half of the trib. If you haven't caught up, make sure you go back through those uh, previous Thursology weeks. Uh, it's all there in detail out of the scripture. But here he is setting himself up as being God. Notice, the apostasy means two things, the appearance of the Antichrist and a departure of the church from the truth of God's word. This is what will prepare the church, if you will, to accept a false Christ. Most of the church will accept the apostate one. Remember from Jesus' teaching in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, he's talking about the tribulation and the great tribulation, and he says, the, the love of most will grow cold. And many will fall away during that time, this great apostasy, right? So most of the church will accept the apostate one, but this will only be possible because most people who consider themselves believers will have become so comfortable with, you ready? With ignoring the scripture, with not paying attention to the word of God. Now, it would be easy for those of us who are watching, I wouldn't be surprised if most, probably not all, but I wouldn't be surprised if most uh, who are watching uh, uh, just it simply blow this off as an impossibility for us. I, I mean, come on. The Antichrist could never pull the wool over our eyes, right? Never. But I want to respond to that attitude 
in our two applications. Ready? Application number one. The great, here's your blanks, the great downfall of the human race is the ease with which we are deceived. Let me say that again. The great downfall of the human race is the ease with which we are deceived. For some reason, humans are impressed by falsehood and we're suspicious of the truth. We so easily become, the, become those who believe in, ready, the absurd. In fact, think about this. This evening, Genesis 3 reminded us of the oldest of all lies. You can be God. I can be the advent. I can be the one in charge. I can replace God and make my own way. Do you realize how patently outrageous this is? And yet, the entire human race has bought this lie for every generation since Adam and Eve. I want you to think about it this way. Just sit back for a second and listen to this. If you stood every single human, so we're talking about humans saying, I'm God, okay? It turns out if you stood every single human who lives on the earth side by side, everybody standing close, right? Non-pandemic conditions. Side by side, do you know how much space the entire human race would take up on the globe? You ready for this? Every one of us would fit into the city of Jacksonville, Florida. That's right, all seven and a half billion of us. But the word of God says that our God marks off the heavens with a span. You ready, to the, you ready for this? What's a span? In the ancient days, you can't see it here, so I'll bring it in here. A span from this side to this side, a span is fingertip to fingertip. He holds the universe in a span, 13 billion light years across. We can be like God? (laughs) Think about this. The strongest human on the planet can briefly lift and barely lift about 2,000 pounds off of the ground. World record. But God holds the oceans in the palm of his hand. (laughs) We can be like God? In one minute, think about this and let it soak in. In one minute, the nuclear reaction going on on the surface of the sun creates the same amount of energy, one minute, the same amount of energy as a hundred million atomic bombs being detonated. And the sun is merely an average sized star. So let this sink in. God created a hundred billion trillion stars in an instant by merely speaking a word. We can be like God. You see, humans will believe the most absurd things. It's really easy for falsehood to masquerade as truth to us humans. And Satan loves to capitalize on this fact. We're easily deceived. But this is important. This isn't because we're stupid. God has given us an amazing mind. You know why it is? It's because deep down inside, we desperately want what we want. And truth is incredibly inconvenient because it doesn't change or bend or mold to meet our interests. It doesn't change to meet our feelings, our desires, or our our whims. And here's a really subtle but important twist for us to identify. No true believer will dethrone God outright, right? 
If you're really following God, you're not going to just say, no, God's not God and I'm God. No true believer is ever going to say that. So it happens like this. When we take our truth over his truth, when we follow our ways rather than his ways, when we take our word over his word without really facing the truth of what we're doing, we're actually dethroning God and enthroning ourselves. That leads to a really important key concept for believers, true believers. Here's the key concept and here's your blanks. When we follow our own ways rather than God's, we're actually participating in our own false advent. When we go our own way, our own way we're assuming the position of God in our lives. And that's exactly what a false advent is. I want my way, not his. The definition of a false advent. And application number two, here's your last application. Self-deception is only prevented by being, ready, two things, by being focused and intentional. Self-deception is only prevented by being focused and intentional. And there should be two things that we focus on. There are more, but these are really key. You ready? Here's your first blanks. Focus number one, we've seen how important it is. The preparation for the apostate church will become, will only come if the church moves away from the centrality of God's word and the truth and, and uh, the, the uh, inspired word of God, okay? Focus number one, know the word and live the word. Not just one, the Pharisees knew the word, but they lived in the sin of pride, so they didn't live the word. Know the word and live the word. So as we move ever closer to the great apostasy that the word tells us about, we need to identify how Christians could end up accepting a false Christ. I mean, how in the world could that happen, right? And I believe there are three fundamental errors that have to occur for the great apostasy to come. And I think you'll see in every one of these already significant moves in the greater church if you will, around the world. Error number one, here's your blanks. The scripture will be questioned as the basis for understanding truth. Okay, there'll be other sources of authority or our interpretation really becomes more important than the text. Our systematic theology uh, trumps the text, right? Rather than the, the, rather than the systematic theology being held hostage to the scripture, our theology holds the scripture hostage to us, right? So error number one, scripture will be questioned as the basis for understanding truth. Error number two, the word will be considered optional, right? Now, who would say that? Nobody. But the reality is, it's what it will become. The word will be considered optional in its influence on believers' personal decision-making. Let that one really soak in. Does the word that I know actually direct my decision-making. And then number three, error number three, ultimately, Christians will come to prefer their own opinions. <laughs> Can you see this happening? Ultimately, Christians will come to prefer their own opinions rather than sound biblical doctrine as the basis for living their lives. So let me ask you some questions before we go to focus number two and finish. To prevent being deceived, how much time are you spending pursuing a deep knowledge of God's word? 
How much time really pursuing the profound depths of God's Word? Second, do you have someone or a group with whom you have deep spiritual conversations that are centered around the Scripture and how it applies in your life? The Scripture, not just common current events or what's going on, or my favorite, favorite you know, small group, <laughs> small group question, what's your favorite color and why? Uh, we, we can be so superficial, deep scripture and how it applies. Third, do you have someone who challenges you on whether your life is lining up with the truths of the word? Someone who really can hold you accountable. And finally, do you live by the precepts of the word even when they're inconvenient, even when they contradict what you want to do, and even when they don't line up with your own personal desires, does the Word drive who you are becoming and the way you make decisions? So focus number one is to know the Word and live the Word. How to keep from being deceived? Focus number two, here it is. Beware of our propensity for subtle compromise. Beware of our propensity for subtle compromise. Let me begin this final section with a key concept. You ready for this? Here's the blanks. The slide away from the truth is rarely dramatic. The slide away from the truth is rarely dramatic. Very few believers go directly from a close relationship with Jesus to full-blown rebellion, right? Nobody just all of a sudden finds themselves, no true believer all of a sudden just finds themselves in the wrong bed. That just doesn't happen, right? The process of going from a vibrant relationship with Christ to lukewarmness to finally outright unbelief is usually a long series of very subtle decisions. It's a compromise here and then a compromise there. And then a few more compromises in other places, and slowly the person drifts away from the centrality of Jesus in their life. One of the great errors among believers is the idea that all is well as long as we're not doing the great sins. But the enemy is actually pleased with even the most subtle hints of moving away from Christ being at the center. The enemy loves watching Christians believe that they're safe simply because they aren't being spectacularly wicked. The enemy loves when we look out at the world and say, wow, look what they're doing. I am so much better than that. I would never do that. The enemy loves that. One of the greatest articulations of the dangers of subtle compromise is C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters. So let me just set it up briefly in case you haven't Red Screw Tape. It's an amazing insight from C.S. Lewis writing this series of letters that come from Screw Tape, Uncle Screw Tape, who is the senior demon, the senior uh, tempter, and he is training his nephew, who's named Wormwood, this junior, young tempter, young demon. And so this series of letters, we never get to see what, uh, uh, although we can infer, we never get to see what Wormwood writes back to Screw Tape. But what we do get to see is the senior tempter's insights to try to train the junior tempter. And look at this from Screwtape. I've put it in. This is so incredibly insightful. 
I've put it in your notes. Read it with me. My dear Wormwood, from Screwtape, Senior Tempter, to the ju Junior Apprentice Tempter. My dear Wormwood, obviously you are making excellent progress. Now what you need to know here is the Wormwood has been tasked with a new young believer trying to tempt him away, trying to make it so he's the, he's the, uh, the seed that springs up quickly but then goes away in the, in the parable uh, of the sower, right? And so the Christian is now about six or eight weeks into his new belief, into his conversion, into the new birth. And so here's Screwtape saying, obviously you are making excellent progress. We have introduced a change of direction in the patient's course. Remember, they're calling him. Remember, the enemy is God because these are demons. And the patient is who Wormwood is trying to tempt away from Jesus. We've introduced a change of direction in the patient's course, which is already carrying him out of his orbit around the enemy. Remember, that's God because it's a demon writing. But he must be made to imagine that all the choices which have affected this change are trivial and revocable. He must not be allowed to suspect that he is now, however slowly, heading right away from the light on a line which will carry him into the cold and outer darkness. For this reason, this is an amazing statement. Listen to it, churchgoers. For this reason, I am almost glad to hear that he is still a churchgoer and taking communion. I know that there are dangers in this, but anything is better than that he would realize the break that he has made with the first months of his Christian life. As long as he retains externally the habits of a Christian, he can still be made to think that his spiritual state is much the same as it was. And while he thinks that, listen to this, what insight. We do not have to contend with the explicit repentance of a definite, fully recognized sin, but only his vague feeling that he hasn't been doing very well lately. Now you will say, remember the senior tempter saying to the young apprentice, you will say that the sins he has begun to toy with are very small sins and doubtless like all young tempters, you're anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. Do, but do remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the human from the enemy. It doesn't matter, whoa, listen, it doesn't matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards, if cards can do the trick. Indeed, one of the most amazing statements in Christian history on this issue. Look at this. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one. The gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. What an insight. As believers begin to move away from focusing on Christ as the absolute center of their life, the enemy is delighted to have them comfortably slide almost imperceptibly into spiritual danger. The enemy loves the slumbering believer whose conscience stops announcing that they're headed in the wrong direction. That just not listening to the voice, not listening to the voice, and it getting quieter and quieter. You see, this is exactly how believers end up in situations that they never would have conceived of when they were walking closely with Christ. But at the end of their slide, they don't even realize that it's happened.
So tonight, during Advent, as we ponder the coming of the false Advent in this second coming series, and as we think about the evil one who is coming to deceive the world, and as we identify the treacherous fact that the Antichrist will be hailed by Christians to be the Christ, I want it to sink in as we're doing that, that the enemy's greatest weapon against us isn't his power, although he has great power. The enemy's greatest weapon against us isn't his brutality, although he is incredibly brutal. And his greatest weapon against us is not his ability to destroy. The enemy's greatest weapon is his subtle ability to deceive humans into thinking that all is well, when in fact, we're drifting ever so subtly away from our first love. And with this grave warning in mind, I'm going to end tonight with some questions. Just listen carefully. Put down your pen, put down your pencil, and just listen. Is there any area of your life where you're drifting away from Christ being at the center of everything you are and everything you do? Is there any area, however subtle or seemingly trivial, where you've begun to move away from God's Word being your constant guide? Are you doing anything right now that you know you should stop? Are you failing to do anything that you know you should do? If so, we have learned the deceptive one, his greatest power, his deception, the masquerading, the us not even noticing, not seeing the slide. You know what that means? It means if any of those things are starting to happen, even a bit, sliding away from Christ at the center, then wake up, watch out, awaken from your slumber, because you're on a slide of deception that will ultimately lead you to the great deception, unless you turn around and surrender your mind heart, and life to the Holy Spirit's leading. Let's pray. Lord God, whoa, we realize that there will be so many who are deceived. We heard in your Olivet Discourse the incredible warning from you that as the tribulation comes, many will fall away. We have heard that the love of, mo of most will grow cold. This great apostasy, this, hey, I don't really like the Christ that's the real Christ. I don't really like the word or some of what the word says. So we start picking and choosing and then we start ignoring, ignoring other parts of the word or we only take that part of the scripture that we like and tickles our fancy. And we, don't, we, we take all the great promises, but we don't, we don't pay attention to the warnings. And Lord, I pray that right now your Holy Spirit will put your finger on specific things, specific areas where you want to draw us back. You want to bring us back and you want to become the center again. And Lord, I pray that no one will take this message as a message of Phariseeism, a message of doing good things in order to make you pleased, but that all of us will realize, Lord, that apart from your fire of cleansing from the Holy Spirit, none of us has any hope of being like you. So I pray right now, Lord, that you will grant us your infilling spirit, that the fire and the power that they experienced at Pentecost that helped you turn that world upside down will be the same fire that cleanses us and power that takes us to the world 
to, to be part of your great mission to change the destiny of those who are out there who need to know you. We love you, Lord. Thank you for the power of your word. Amen.